Novartis, committed to making innovative medicines for a world of patients and their families. Online at Novartis.com. Novartis, think what's possible. Welcome to Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting May 17th. I'm Steve Mursky. On this week's podcast, we're going underground with Scientific American magazine editor Mark Alpert talking about his visit to the Fermi National Accelerator Laboratory. Then we'll be talking about computing, dry and wet. Scientific American senior writer Wade Gibbs reports from a conference devoted to the interface between computers and humans. And Ehud Shapiro from the Weizmann Institute of Science talks about computers in humans, DNA computers. First up, Mark Alpert. He's one of Siam's physics guys, as you'll hear. They think climbing inside a particle accelerator beats a trip to Disney World. I spoke to him at his office. Mark, you were、uh, telling me you had an interesting experience last week. Where were you? Well, I was at Fermi National Accelerator Laboratory inside the Tevatron, which is a, a pretty unique thing to do because、uh, usually you can't go inside there because the beam is running and、uh, there'd be some radioactivity in the tunnel, and so they don't let people in. But the Tevatron was shut down. For- well, well, back up a bit.、Sure. Tell everybody what is the Tevatron and what were you doing there? Well, it, the Tevatron is still the world's most powerful particle accelerator. Basically, it accelerates protons to super high speeds, ninety-nine point nine 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 nine, etc., percent of the speed of light, and then it smashes these protons against some antiprotons. And physicists study those collisions in the detectors to see what comes out of it, and that explains、uh, things like you know the nature of matter, the existence of other dimensions, things like that.、Uh, and it, the Tevatron has been around. For more than twenty years,、um, but it's going to be replaced pretty soon by the LHC, the Large Hadron Collider in Europe. So、uh, these are the last years of the Tevatron's life, but it's still producing some really interesting physics. They're still working at it,、uh, trying to push as many protons as possible into that beam so that they could discover more things in these last few years of the Tevatron's life. So I thought I need to go there to see it before it's、uh, before it's shut down. And、uh, luckily, the time I went, the、um, The Tevatron was in a shutdown mode, and that means they were doing maintenance on the thing, so the protons weren't actually running. So I could actually go inside the tunnel. And now this is a tunnel that's about 25 or 30 feet beneath the surface of the Earth, and it curves in a big ring, four miles in circumference. And it's in the middle of、uh, Fermi National Laboratory, which is this, you know, beautiful stretch of preserved prairie、uh, right outside of Chicago. So what did what did you get out of it other than the experience of being in there? Anything? Well, just I was amazed at the expertise of these people who run the thing about how they had used all of these little tricks to get it to work at maximum efficiency. I mean, the, the thing about the the, the Tevatron is they can't increase the total energy of the collision. The, you have protons moving at one、uh, one trillion electron volts in one direction, antiprotons moving in the other direction at one trillion electron volts. So total energy of two. Trillion electron volts. You can't increase the energy, but what you can really increase is, like I said, that efficiency—the number of protons hitting each other. And apparently, they've done so many little tweaks on the system that the Tevatron is is working at an efficiency two hundred times higher than it was designed for. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, and it was just really fun. I mean, you know, just seeing the people and, and going into the control room, and they have this, you know, these computer screens, and there's this big zipper running across the top saying Tevatron is in shutdown mode, and everyone calls it the Tev. You know, like you know, this, this is their this is their you know 
buddy or something. And that goes offline when the Large Hadron goes online? Well, that hasn't been established yet. I mean, there's still a lot more to be, a lot more that the Tevatron can do. I think the scheduled, uh, date uh, is something on the order of 2010, so they're going to run it for a few years. It all depends on what happens with the uh, Large Hadron Collider, it, it, which I think is supposed to come online in 2007, but may not be fully online. You know, they have to calibrate it and the full, full results coming in. But eventually, uh, the high-energy frontier will move to Europe. But there's a lot of exciting things that are still going to happen at Fermilab. Uh, they're now reconfiguring a lot of the lab so that some of their assets can be used for research into neutrinos. They've already got a, a nice neutrino program at Fermilab. Uh, they got this one experiment called Boone, where they fire a neutrino beam at this huge spherical tank that contains 800 tons of mineral oil. Uh, and neutrinos, as you may know, are uh, particles, very mysterious particles. Um, they have no charge. Neutrino means little neutral one. Uh, and until 1998, people thought they had no mass either. But then they discovered that these things are weirder than anyone thought. They are actually changing flavor as they fly through space, and that indicates that they do have mass. And so physicists were suddenly stunned by this, and now they're really intensively investigating how they're changing their so-called flavor from electron neutrinos to muon neutrinos to tau neutrinos. And one of these experiments is this Boone experiment where they fire muon neutrinos at this spherical tank of mineral oil, and they see uh, how many of them are changing, have changed in route. David Blaine is not in this spherical tank full of mineral oil. <laughs> no, no, the, the, the tank has been shut for since 2002, so if he's in there, he's in trouble. Um, it's basically closed up tank, but on the inside surface of the sphere are these photomultipliers. And so what happens is when one of these neutrinos comes through, and the neutrinos, the, what makes them so devilish is that they interact so infrequently with anything. I mean, there's trillions passing through you all the time. Um, but every once in a while, they'll hit something and they'll do something. And hopefully, when you fire an intense neutrino beam at this tank, every once in a while, you'll see this little flash little scintillation come out, and it's it's um, this thing called the Cherenkov light. It's a cone of light, and they could tell from the uh, from the characteristics of this light, you know, what what was that? Was that an electron neutrino? Was that a muon neutrino? Was that, you know, something else? You know, and so they, they analyzed the results, and they've been analyzing and analyzing and analyzing, and supposedly sometime this summer, they're supposed to come out with their big result. And this result could be really kind of revolutionary because um, what they're trying to confirm is that there might be a fourth kind of neutrino, which some people call the sterile neutrino, which interacts even less than the flavored neutrinos. Now, the whole deal on neutrinos, I think, tell me tell me if this is right, is um, that little bit of mass that they look like they have is really important for everybody who's trying to figure out what the heck is going on in our universe here with the... There's a lot of mass and energy that's unaccounted for and there's been a there's been hope that they could they could blame it on the neutrinos is that right well yeah but with a the qualification there's certain upper bounds that they've established on neutrino mass so most theoreticians seem to think that it's probably no more than a f neutrinos can probably account for no more than a, a few percent of what they call the dark matter the missing mass out there but there's another thing called dark energy which is even more mysterious which no one really can get a handle on yet possibly are neutrinos involved in that who knows and what, what makes neutrinos so exciting is people understand them so poorly and the physicists i talked to said look if you're looking for physics 
that we don't know yet, physics beyond the standard model, new kinds of physics. A neutrino is a good place to look for it because we don't know what they're doing. Maybe some new kind of physics, maybe, maybe what we're seeing with neutrinos is some manifestation of the new physics. And that's what a lot of these experiments are, are geared at finding out. It's one of the things I really like about science and, and scientists is that, you know, out in the, in the rest of the world, when things are not understood, people sometimes get aggravated and frustrated and that happens in science too but a lot you'll hear a lot of scientists talk with such enthusiasm and excitement when things are not understood because that's that's the next place to go to explore yeah i i think that's true uh, um you you sense since scientists eyes are lighting up when when they bring up concepts that sound incredibly radical and of course you know, they say with any radical discovery it requires really extraordinary proof. Extraordinary discovery requires extraordinary proof. And so um, that's why, you know, they're so intent on confirming experiments. You need at least two experiments to really confirm something uh, about particle physics. And, uh, and what's interesting to me, too, is when you talk to the experimental guys, the guys who are designing and running these big detectors um, – their whole mindset is very different from the theoretical guys. And, and uh, when talking about the, the theory, I mean, they're very excited about getting a new result and they really want to make sure it's a good result. They want to, they really bend over backwards to do their analysis of the results correctly to make sure that they're not just making something up out of the computer data, that, that the result is real. Uh, but then when you ask them, well, what does this mean? They sort of hand off the ball to the theoreticians. They say, uh, yeah, it, well, it says a lot about the oscillations. And, and then I start asking them even more about that and they say now you're getting a little beyond my expertise even you should talk to a theorist so uh, it's really neat to see the different kinds of outlooks the two kinds of scientists have great thanks a lot mark oh you're welcome the website of fermi national accelerator laboratory is www.fnal.gov we'll be right back Greetings, human. Wanna share some thoughts about the podcast? Let us know what you think by participating in our survey at www.siam.com slash research. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, but only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story 1. A quick and easy dip strip could soon be available for testing hot beverages for caffeine, thanks to antibodies from camels and llamas. Story 2. It's long been assumed that for effective hormonal signaling, you want a tight fit between a hormone and its receptor. But a new study shows that a loose fit between a hormone molecule and its receptor may actually ramp up the level of cellular signaling that the hormone is there for. Story 3, a bill being considered in England would ban ice cream trucks from the vicinity of schools because the constant repetition of the ice cream truck song causes children to become distracted and hyperactive. And Story 4, a study shows that microbes can create usable electricity as they break down organic material in wastewater. We'll be back with the answer, but first, Scientific American senior writer Waite Gibbs was in Montreal in late April at the CHI 2006 conference. CHI is for Computer Human Interface, and the conference is the largest annual meeting of computer scientists who study and invent the ways that humans and computers talk to each other. Waite sat down with Ed Cutrell, a human and a member of Microsoft Research's Adaptive Systems Interaction Group. Here's Waite's report. 
Qtrils Group at Microsoft Research has been developing software called Flat that goes a step or two beyond the Google for the desktop utilities that are available now and that allow people to find information on their own computers rather than the Internet using a Google-like keyword search. Flat gives users the ability to tag their documents, photos, email messages, and the like with labels to create whatever set of categories makes sense to them. They can apply these tags to any of the things that show up in their search results. Qtrill argues that in the long term, this kind of non-hierarchical organization system is likely to supersede the use of virtual folders as storage bins for the data on our computers. One of the other things that we're really interested in in my group that uh, Susan Dumay and I have been working on for quite a while is something called implicit query. People don't search just because they feel like searching. They're searching in support of something else, and they're always looking for some information so they can do something else. There's an ongoing task, and search is somehow supporting that by finding some information for them. To take a trivial example, you need to find an email message from somebody because you're preparing to send them an email message and in reply. Exactly. You need their address. Anytime you do a search, it always happens with something else in mind or doing something else. And to the extent that we can start to understand what that is, we can start to help you out. Implicit query is one way to do that. And what implicit query means is it's contrasted with explicit query where you type in some words or you're going out and saying, I'm searching for blah. In implicit query, the machine just does something for you. It does the search, presents you the results, and ideally you're either not distracted if you didn't care about it or terribly pleased if you did. It's sort of just-in-time information delivery. Exactly. There are a bunch of challenges to this. I mean, one is figuring out what you're doing. The other is figuring out what's relevant to you. Third is how you present this information in a way that's not obtrusive, in a way that doesn't just bother you so much that you turn the whole thing off. Fourth is that if you need it, you can see it. We just built a little system. It's a, a plug-in to Outlook. So I pull up a mail message, and what the system is doing is it's going through and it's reading all the text in the mail message. And it's doing a lookup of all that text against my index, my personal index. Conceptualize it this way. Your index, Windows Desktop Search or Google Search or whoever, that index is basically a list of all the words in all your documents, how often they happen, and where they occur. Think of that as being a proxy for you. Now, I have an arbitrary email message come in. I look at all those words, and I compare those words in that document to the words in the index and say, you know what? These words here are not very useful because they occur all over the place in his index. These other words, on the other hand, don't happen that often. So it infers the good search terms from the message, then it does that query automatically, puts it up over here, So what happens is that it looks over all this stuff and it just shows related things. So this is an email message from Susan asking me to send her my slide deck from this talk I gave the other day. And what you see are a series of email messages about various things, some of them about some competition and about some slides here, other stuff. And in fact, you can see the slide deck that she asked about. It's right here. There's a lot of challenges here about how to show this information. One of the challenges is the fact that Every time I write an email or do anything in email, I'm getting this thing over on the side that's showing me a bunch of stuff. That can be very distracting. And if I've got lots of emails open, and they all have this thing, it's going to be even more of a problem. So one of the things we do is, for instance, if the 
if the mail message is moved around or if it's anywhere else, we just hide that little window. If I have multiple email messages open, then only the one on the top is present. Maybe I'm going to copy and paste something. And mm -hmm. as soon as I've highlighted it, this is now then updating according to what I just did. It's basically a new query mm -hmm. for just those terms. So as you can see, basically, as I'm typing, it's just updating this as I add more and more words to right. it. Now, that's a little bit distracting, but we found that it's not that bad. That most of the time that this has proven to be useful is when it's presenting me stuff that I didn't know I needed to know. So what we're trying to do is provide some peripheral awareness of information that's not too overwhelming and not too distracting. It's arguable whether we've hit it with this, but so far, I'm, it's pretty promising. Flat is available for download from Microsoft Research at research.microsoft.com slash adapt slash flat, and that's P-H-L-A-T. Implicit Query, which was first described several years ago but has only recently entered active development, is currently being tested internally by several hundred Microsoft employees. Back to Wade Gibbs with more from the Computer Human Interface Conference. A number of other intriguing prototypes and research results were presented at the conference, including a brainwave monitor for better spying, high-tech toys to help toddlers talk, and a study on the hazards of skimming through Scientific American. First, if you've ever worried that the CIA is monitoring your brainwaves, you might be interested in work presented by a group of researchers from Honeywell Laboratories and Oregon Health and Science University. Noting that the majority of military surveillance imagery never gets examined, they turned to brain scans as a way to help spies scan more quickly through large sets of images, in particular satellite surveillance photos, and to identify those pictures that contain targets of interests, such as, say, missile silos or insurgent camps. The scientists outfitted professional image analysts with helmets that picked up the electrical brainwaves produced as the subjects viewed photos flashed in quick succession on a computer screen. In experiments with tens of thousands of images, the scientists noticed that when the analyst looked at an image that contained a target, a distinctive wave of electrical activity often swept from the front to the back of the brain. They programmed a computer to use the brainwave pattern to discriminate interesting from uninteresting images, and they found that it correctly classified the images about 85% of the time. Parents wanting to give their infants that crucial edge in preschool will want to follow the VisiBabble project. In Montreal, Harriet Fell and co-workers at Northeastern University presented high-tech VisiBabble toys that they have designed to help toddlers, or older children with speech delays, learn to talk. The devices monitor the babbling of youngsters and reward utterances that are similar to actual syllables. By offering encouragement, such as cheering sounds or cute photos, the prototype system increased syllable production by about a half and syllable variety by about a third in preliminary tests. Finally, the conference sounded a note of warning about trying to blow through that issue of Scientific American too quickly. Two informatics experts at the University of Manchester in England asked 32 undergraduate psychology students to read articles from Scientific American on a computer screen at either a normal speed of 225 words a minute or a skimming speed of 600 words a minute. Comprehension tests revealed predictably that the readers were less likely to recall particular sentences from the article when they zipped through it quickly. 
More surprisingly, however, the researchers found that when they asked the students to evaluate false statements about the topic, skimmers were much more likely to say that the statement was consistent with the article, which, needless to say, it wasn't. This research might explain some of the puzzling letters we get from readers from time to time. More info about the Computer Human Interface Conference can be found at www.chi2006.org slash blogs slash official. We'll be right back. Novartis, committed to making innovative medicines for a world of patients and their families. Online at novartis.com. Novartis, think what's possible. Now it's time to see which story was totally bogus. Let's review the four stories. Story one, new caffeine test has camels and llamas to thank. Story two, looser-fitting hormones may be what the doctor ordered. Story three, ice cream truck song banned from British schools. And story four, electricity for microbial activity in wastewater. Time's up. Story one is true. Antibodies from camels and llamas for some reason can survive at much higher temperatures than antibodies from, say, mice. Camel and llama antibodies to caffeine could thus be harvested and used in a dip strip, like for a litmus test or a blood glucose test. You dip the strip in the hot beverage and observe some kind of color change if caffeine were there. The research was in the journal Analytical Chemistry. Story two is true. A new study shows that a hormone that doesn't quite fit its receptor may actually do a better job. That's according to a study in the current Journal of Biological Chemistry. Researchers looked at thyrotropin-releasing hormone, which stimulates the thyroid. They also examined six slightly altered versions of the hormone, some of which turned out to be twice as effective as the real thing. The thinking is that the looser-fitting, slightly wrong hormone molecule keeps kind of clicking in and out of the receptor with each click in fooling the receptor into sending off its signal. Look for that concept of figure in future drug development. And story four is true. By making fuel cells using the right kinds of bacteria as they digested organic waste, researchers got a usable electrical current. You can read more about that in David Biello's article, Microbes Convert Wastewater into Usable Electricity. It's on our website, www.siam.com. All of which means that story three about the British ice cream trucks being banned from near schools because the song drives kids nuts is totally bogus. What is true, however, is that a bill in England may indeed ban the country's 5,000 ice cream trucks from going near schools in an effort to fight childhood obesity. And what is also true is that the story in the Times of London began by noting that the familiar ice cream truck theme song might no longer be heard near schools. And I honestly assumed the story was going to be about banning trucks because of the negative mental effects of hearing that theme music over and over and over and over Okay, okay, I'm okay. In England, it's apparently green sleeves on the uh, the ice cream trucks, which has got to be better than what we hear in New York, which is this. Which I actually found. Somebody posted it on the Internet. Uh, that music has crawled into my head so deeply sometimes I've considered writing variations on it for bells and straitjacket flaps. 
Next up, Ehud Shapiro. He's a professor in the departments of computer science and biological chemistry at the Weizmann Institute of Science in Rehovot, Israel. And he and Yaakov Benenson wrote the article in the May issue of Scientific American called Bringing DNA Computers to Life. I called him at his home in the small village of Natas in the Judea Mountains. Dr. Shapiro, great to talk to you today. Hello, good afternoon. The article in the current issue of Scientific American very interesting about uh about cellular computing and uh biochemical computing one of the things at the end of the article let me start with the end you talk at the end how a lot of people probably have heard of alan turing and the turing machine where where turing in the 30s in england conceptualized modern computing and and had these thought experiments in which he figured out what a computer should do, how the processing should work. And at the end of your article, you talk about the fact that the actual computers that we use in real life today are really kind of deviations off that Turing idea. But the cellular computers that you've been experimenting with are actually more in keeping with Turing's original concept. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, my background is a computer scientist, and I've known about the Finest and Turing machines uh, before I learned uh, molecular biology. And uh, for me, when I started learning about molecular biology, it was really amazing to see the strong similarity between how uh, living cells store information and process information and how Turing envisioned in, in the 30s, even before we knew about the structure of biological molecules, how he envisioned a computing device, that a theoretical computing device that was very much in line with how cells uh, operate. So this inspired uh, my search for uh, a computing mechanism that will uh, utilize existing machinery that is available in the cell, uh, enzymes that uh, manipulate uh, DNA, can sense what's written in DNA and change it, and how can we take these basic building blocks and uh, reconstruct uh, a physical machine that actually is an embodiment of the uh, of the theoretical Turing machine that uh, Turing proposed. And what happened is they came up with a concrete design, uh, but uh, was unable to implement it from biological molecules uh, because I didn't have uh, the know-how um, at the time. So we, with the help of engineers, we actually built a mechanical plastic uh, machine that is inspired by biological uh, devices, but uh, but uh, is, is, a, is a mechanical device, and this was the start of, of this research. What happened uh, after we came up with this uh, mechanical uh, device, uh, I was searching for a collaboration on, on actually making it from biological molecules, and uh, 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 Kobe Benenson, who is uh, my co-author and was my PhD student, uh, approached me and, and suggested to work together, and then we started working on uh, yeah, on actual chemical implementation using his knowledge from in biochemistry. And what we ended up building was not a full-fledged Turing machine, but a much more simplified device called the finite automaton. Um, a Turing machine, just to, for illustration, a Turing machine can read and write information and can go left and right. And what we built was a machine that can only read information off a tape and go only in one direction. And uh, this is the finite automaton we built and reported uh, earlier and also described in, in the Scientific American paper. And what actually is going on, it's it's hard to visualize, and there are some wonderful illustrations in the article, 
But if you can verbally, can you can you try to explain what's actually chugging along in the cell? Yeah, actually, what's chugging along in the cell? It's it's essentially so simple that people sometimes think uh, or ask me, why do I call it a computer? It's just a bunch of enzymes that eat uh, eat up DNA molecules, a DNA molecule. And indeed, what's physically happening or chemically happening is that uh, there is an initial DNA molecule which encodes uh, some information. Um, in the early versions of the computer, it was just uh, very simple, you know, zeros and ones. In a later version, uh, um, we actually encoded names of disease conditions. And also at the molecule at the end, we also embedded uh, a drug molecule. And what is the computer? What the computer is doing is actually cutting the DNA molecule uh, one step at a time or one symbol at a time. And it is cutting it in a specific way that uh, every time it cuts it, it actually encodes uh, a piece of information, basically yes or no. And uh, in the case of the medical application we were uh, describing, the the question we're asking is, is there a disease? And the computer uh, is starting with the assumption, yes, there is a disease, and checks one condition at a time and keeps this bit of information on, this yes on. And as soon as it encounters a disease condition which is not present, it switches to an off state and continues processing. And at the end of this chugging along along the DNA molecule, we know by the particular way in which the DNA molecule is cut, whether it, all the conditions were satisfied and indeed there is a disease present, or no, one of the conditions was not satisfied, and therefore we conclude that there is no disease. Uh, once we cut, complete the diagnosis part, the DNA molecule is cut in a specific way, and depending on the yes or no answer to this question, if it's yes, we keep cutting it until we release the drug molecule. If the answer is no, then the computation stops at that point, and the drug molecule is kept in its location inactive. A lot of work remains to actually package this computer in a way that can be delivered to a cell and compute inside a cell. And it's an important point that there's an actual uh, applied uh, activity here that that you're going for because I I think that uh, cellular computers or molecular computers have gotten a lot of attention in the past in with people thinking that we might be replacing the uh, the tower on our home computers with this box full of goop that would uh, be performing calculations using DNA. But what you're really talking about here is using cellular machinery as a computing device to analyze the state of a, of a living cell because those things are going to naturally be able to interact with each other. What uh, really is exciting for us is not to try to beat electronic computers. They're quite good at what they're doing, but uh, in a way to use computing power in the right place and in the right time uh, to achieve the effect of smart drugs. So drugs that are not just released anytime, anywhere, but drugs that are released only when a disease is diagnosed at a particular location. Great to talk to you. Thank you very much, Dr. Shapiro. Thank you very much. Shapiro's article on DNA computing is in the May issue of Scientific American and is available on our website, Siam.com. We'll be right back. I'm John Rennie, the editor-in-chief of Scientific American magazine. If you'd like a free preview issue of Scientific American, as well as a gift, visit www.siam.com today. Well, that's it for this edition of the Scientific American podcast. Our email address is podcast at siam.com. And also remember that Science News is updated daily on the Scientific American website, www.siam.com. 
For Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.